Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 47, Seasons of a Magical Life with Byron Ballard. In this episode, we welcome Byron back to the Plant Cunning Podcast, and we speak with her about her new book, Seasons of a Magical Life. We talk about the wheel of the year, cycles, we go through the seasons with her, especially this season, the season of the autumn equinox going into Samhain. Talk about seasonal celebrations and how they connect us back into the land, back into having a good relationship with the earth. We talk about these seasonal festivities, the spokes of the year, the ember tides, about permaculture, and we really get deep into grief and how to accept the end of cycles and accept the reality of birth and death. We have a really lovely conversation with our dear friend Byron. We hope that you feel inspired to get connected into these seasonal celebrations and connect to the earth through these cycles. Also, maybe get her book. And if uh, you like this podcast and you want to help it succeed, uh, you are welcome to share these with your friends, rate us on iTunes, and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash plantcunning. This is part one of our interview with Byron. And part two is available for our Patreon supporters. So if you'd uh, like to hear it, get on to patreon.com slash plantcunning. And for everyone, I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, welcome once again to Byron Ballard. Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast. This is our second time with you, and we're very happy and excited to talk with you. How are you today? I am very well, and it's exciting to be back with you two. You're, you're two of my favorite people, and I say that all the time to everyone. So there. Oh, I know you're absolutely one of my favorite people in the whole world, so... Oh, it's the mutual loving that I love. <laughs> yeah, I'm up in the high country today in uh, Western North Carolina. I'm up in Ash County, which is famous for its cheese and just its beautiful splendor. My um, my daughter and her partner bought a house up here oh, a few months ago. So we're funny. up we're up uh, trying to figure out what we're going to do on their land. <laughs> <laughs> awesome <laughs> bring in byron to yep. show you how it's done yeah how, how many acres do they have i mean oh no it's just a big yard okay cool. well yeah that's still that's that's a lot of fun anyway it's actually kind of more fun sometimes if you have a smaller amount of space to like fit everything in you know you yeah know. and they have a little creek which is wonderful Ooh, so neat. yeah i'm eyeing where the beds are gonna go and mm. which herbs are gonna go where mm-hmm Absolutely. I'm going to be an obnoxious mother. <laughs> Good. I think that's that's an important part, important role. Uh, and how are you two yahoos? Well, we're good. It's been it's been a really busy year. Yeah. Yeah. It's been it's been a difficult year, um but I'm starting to I don't know, feel 
functional again, feeling like I can, you know, work around the farm and um, go to markets and, you know, be in the world more. Good, good. Yeah. It's, it's been hard. And, yeah, and I know that your uh, podcast listeners acknowledge that and, and are dealing with their own stuff because everybody's mm-hmm. got stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been pretty difficult, pretty trying. But I know for me, once it starts to cool down, and it's begun to cool down here. We've got temperatures in the seventies. Then I want to get out and start winter gardening and, and clearing up beds and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm like you, I'm a little more energized than I was, but I still, I'm still looking at getting some rest this fall, late fall and winter mm-hmm. if I can. Yeah. Well, that's the time to do that. So how has your year been? It has been one of the worst gardening years of my life. And it's kind of embarrassing because my new book is all about gardening. It's all about tending land. Mm -hmm. And I've tended land and tended land. But we had the place that I live in, the Southern Appalachians, is a uh, temperate rainforest. Mm. And in years past, there was tons of rain, tons of rain. We haven't had that in a long time. We've had much more. We've had drought several times and just a dearth of rainfall. This year we had classic rainforest rainfall. And what happened is the things all around my garden, the trees and shrubs got so big that they overhung the garden and I didn't get enough sun. So tomatoes were not good. My early spring plants weren't even particularly good to brassicas. I've done great with onions. Okra is doing well. I had great uh, lettuces and spinach, but it's not been a great year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's always those few things that like pull through, though, that are like, all right, we did good with the okra. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And we've had beautiful flowers this year. I'm not much of a flower person in the garden. I usually want to, if it's soil, I want to grow something you can eat in it or a, or a, an herbal medicine in it. But this year I just went a little wild and I, everywhere I went, I would put nasturtium seeds in and I'd stolen some big marigolds from, um, from in front of a restaurant here in town Uh and planted those. And they're, they're almost six feet tall. They're huge. Wow. So so there's lots of good flowers, (laughs) but not important. I, I think flowers are very important too. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Yeah, I did a lot of nasturtium this year, um, kind of as like a head of the row. It was either a tobacco plant or a nasturtium at the end of each row. And that was lovely to walk around and see these bright pops of orange and little tobacco flowers and other seed heads. And they're really a a unique shape. So is it like the flowering tobacco? Um, No, we did two kinds. We did uh, like a gold dollar type you know virginia tobacco but it has uh-huh. pinkish flowers and then we did um an oneida tobacco which is a lot smaller and um it's like the rust uh nicotan <laughs> rustica the species um, so oh like, yeah that sounds fascinating what what led you to grow some tobacco well it's uh, you know mainly for offerings actually yeah yeah, um, because I, I grew tobacco a number of years ago and back when I smoked tobacco and um, 
I've, I still have a bit, and I, but I've been using it over all, all these years as mainly as offerings for when I uh, forage plants, because that's the traditional offering in this area. So, huh. yeah, it was kind of sentimental for me, too. I had some seeds from the old Tweefontaine herb farm that I um, was a part of a collective four years ago, and they were from 2011, I believe. And I was like, oh, we'll see if any of these come up. And they did great. And so it was just uh, kind of an homage to that, that time and that place. Oh, cause I've been thinking of doing that. Cause I, I grew up of course in tobacco country, still live in what was tobacco country. Mm-hmm. And there is something, there's something so, I don't want to use the word precious, but I guess I will precious about the memories of that plant and how, how important it was in the local economy because there were kids I knew who didn't get new shoes for, for fall until the tobacco was sold and their parents had a little bit of cash to buy something they couldn't grow. Mm. And the, and the, the days and weeks when the tobacco would be coming into the big tobacco warehouses and there'd be these huge old trucks full of this golden burly and you could you could stop at a tobacco warehouse and just get out of the car and smell it. Mm-hmm. And it smells so wonderful and earthy and sweet. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, cigarette smoking is really bad. And we have proven that, I guess, again and again. But mm-hmm. there's something about the culture of all that. That's now a lost culture. That, that culture has had to, had to change or die. But there's something about it that's, that's a compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's a very powerful plant. Um, it is. And the seeds last a long time. So we're doing tobacco this year, and then we'll probably have enough for a number of years. Um, and then we'll plant it again uh, in a few years. <laughs> and can you save seed from oh, those yeah. plants? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, and, and they last a lo- really long time. So, yeah, and they have a lot of seeds, like thousands of seeds in these little capsules, basically. Yeah, we'll send you some if you want. Yeah. Oh, I would love that. Okay. Woohoo! How exciting. Yeah. Tobacco comes back to tobacco country. Yeah. Well, I know there are people like you that are growing a little bit of tobacco for their own use, whether they uh, whether they smoke tobacco or they use it for offerings. So yeah, yeah I would I would love that. I've been part of a, a or I'm now part of this project that is really interesting there's a group um called the utopian seed project do you know them uh not really i haven't heard of them no yeah i will i'll send you a link to their work i did um heirloom okra with them this year and then i've just started on their heirloom collard green project so i i moved around some beds and redug them and got them all ready and I put in um, oak. Um, I put in collard greens, heirloom collard greens, uh, earlier this week, Thursday maybe. Um, covered it with row cloth, you know, and we'll see how that works too. Well, we did collards uh, last year, and they were really, really good. They're huge, and they're huge. Yeah. What did you do to keep the bugs off them? We didn't have a problem with them for some reason. It was little. 
maybe because it's colder here or I don't, I don't know. Well, yeah, maybe no, we weren't growing brassicas there. Um, this year I've been seeing a lot of little white moths around. <laughs> oh yeah. But, uh, but still a lot of our brassicas are doing fine. Um, but yeah, it was kind of maybe luck of the draw. We yeah. didn't do any this year, so. But it was really good, especially with uh, caramelized onions and bacon fat. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh my gosh, I love collards. In fact, there's, I planted collards and then I came in and cooked a bag of collards. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I just love them. And I drink the pot liquor. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Mm. See, I don't know what you all wanted to talk about today, but uh, <laughs> collards is good. Yeah, college is always good. Well, it's it's we'd like to talk about the, your new book, Seasons of a Magical Life, uh, from Wiser, which is really exciting. And it also, um, I mean, talking about your year is like I get I guess a good introduction to it because it's all about uh, cycles and 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 the the wheel of the year. Yeah, it's I tell people that that book is the book of my heart. Yes, oh. that I've been I've been in and out of and part of and not part of pagan and earth religions communities for 40 years easy. And I find again and again that, that people who claim that they follow the seasons or claim that they're connected to the earth or use phrases like the earth is my mother. They really have almost no connection to the planet at all. (laughs) They, They have beautiful chance and they got great t-shirts and whatever but as far as really having an animist viewpoint they just don't have it and and they get bogged down in what the latest fad is about about their spirituality and and they just if they would just ah if they just go outside just be outside yeah just make friends with planting um just so I wanted to write a book that would um, that would welcome people and encourage them to have a deeper relationship to the planet in that it would deepen their spirituality. It, it really would. It would not be this sort of shallow thing that depended on you getting the latest tchotchke or the latest hideous goddess figure, but would be you out standing on grass or standing in, in soil and feeling what the real spirit of the place is. So that's what the book is about. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like it was written like for me, or I feel like it was a letter that you're writing or a story <laughs> you're telling over a cup of tea. Like your voice comes through so well as all oh. of your writing. This, well, is my, and, this is my favorite book that you've written. Oh, uh, thank you. A lot of people have said that. Really? <laughs> um, yeah. And and your listeners, your listeners need to know that in among all the special thanks are the two of you. Oh, I, that was so sweet. <laughs> like, <I was> <laughs> because you really, you, the two of you in your lives and life, um, you really embody all the stuff I talk about in this book about things being both very simple and also very deep that it's nothing is ever disconnected from anything else. So yeah. yeah, And so bringing geese onto your land or, you know, in the pre-show we talked about bringing up, bringing pigs onto your land, what that does Mm -hmm. to the, to the ecosystem of a farm. You, you two walk your talk. 
And I always admire that about people. Oh, you got me crying again. <laughs> it's easy well, if we hear you go. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate it. I feel really honored uh, that you that you did that. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And so I think in some ways what I wanted to achieve with the book, it is achieving. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's only been out, what, a month and a couple of days. But there are people who are contacting me to say, I just never thought of it that way. Mm. And I never, so does this mean, and this is the question I love getting is, does this mean I'm an animist? Mm. And the answer is yes. It means that you have gone back to the most simple, most primitive spiritual structure humans ever had as being an animist. So yes, that's what you are. And you don't have to be anything else. You don't have to attach stories to all of this, you can just live in it. Mm-hmm. The geomythology of being yeah. on the land. And the the direct experience and the feeling of it, you know, that's yeah. really about painting yeah. to to actually connecting, <laughs> actually getting into into the to the wheel. Because we're all we, we all are part of nature. It's just that we don't realize it. We don't well, and that's that's why I wanted to create what for me was a new phrase because relationship has become so overused in so many areas that I want to have a relationship with the land. I want to have a relationship to the earth or what it it has become almost meaningless jargon. So, but what I wanted to express and the phrase I came on was acknowledged kinship because we are connected just what you said we are connected to all of this and we are all of this and all we have to do really is to say yes and acknowledge it yeah and maybe even change some of our behaviors a little bit (laughs) because we all (laughs) we all do have a relationship to the land it's just that most people a lot of people in industrial society have a bad relationship you know what i mean an abusive relationship yes yes or, or they're or they're scared of it. Yeah, there's there's a whole branch of fiction and film called urban noia, and that's all about city people going out into the country, mm-hmm. and being so terrified of what kind of hobgoblins they're oh, going to find there. Right, it's true. And and now we've got like ticks, and we've got all sorts of other stuff. So they they got lots of valid reasons to be scared, but. <laughs> It's it's true. We had oh, a mountain lion here a, a couple uh, like a month ago. So, oh, that's well. I was going to say that's wonderful because yay for your biosphere. It really needs yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing we're missing now. We're missing those apex predators in a lot of places, and we need them. Mm-hmm. A healthy ecosystem has all of that. And I always tell people um, when because I grew up in a in a hunting culture. Mm-hmm. is that if you take away the apex predator, somebody has got to call the deer herd. So it's going to be us. Exactly. We got to do it. And that, that's one of the reasons that I've decided to, to, to hunt this year. And I haven't done it before. My granddad would, my granddad taught my dad how to, but he never taught me. Um, but it's, it, it's like, I feel like it's a responsibility. You know, there aren't any wolves here anymore. There are some coyotes. Now there's a mountain lion, but we've just created a lot more, environment for them because they love that forest edge and then we've gotten rid of all of their predators so it's like it's kind of our job (laughs) 
It, it absolutely is. And, and down here, you know, we have that great big Biltmore estate and then other sort of suburban housing places have built up around that for the people who like the cachet of being part of the Biltmore estate. But the reality is we don't have wolves. We, I don't think we have mountain lions in, in town. So somebody's got to be in there and be the apex predator. So they bring people in several times a year with special permits to hunt the herd. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Cause the deer won't often survive like the, as many deer as there are, can't necessarily survive on the amount of food that they need every day. And there's really not a lot of forage in the winter. So right. they're surviving off bark and saplings and, um, yeah, I see a lot in the spring. I walk through the woods and I see a lot of downed deer that didn't make it. Yeah. And that's a lot well, more suffering. You know? it, it, yes. And, and if they're weak, if they have, if their nutritional uh, sources are not available, mm-hmm. they're just going to get weak and sick. Yeah. And then we get into this weird Darwinian place where it really is only the strong who can survive. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something, it's another thing that's on our, it's on our plate. We did it. Right. Well, there's also this, this idea of bad and good. Like we have kind of, you know, from our perspective, there are things that are bad and they're good, but from a deer's perspective, I mean, a wolf attacking them and eating them is bad, but at the same time, that relationship is necessary for them to have a healthy herd. Yeah. It's good for their species, but bad for the individual. Mm. Yeah. And, and boy, and that got heavy, didn't it? It's tis the season, you know, right. we're kind of into the fall, into the season where we're kind of uh, looking at grief head on, you know? Yeah. Well, and I was, I was uh, bathing yesterday and the song that came up while I was bathing was hoof and horn. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, we're moving into the season of sacrifice yeah. We're moving into the season of plenty and of preservation and of death and remembrance. Yeah. At least in this hemisphere. Right. Well, so let's just talk a little bit about this book, Seasons of a Magical Life. Um, you've structured it uh, around the the wheel of the year and uh, the ember tides and various um, holidays, basically. Mm-hmm. Holy days. Holy days. Yeah. Which I think is, it's, it's very interesting and necessary. We were also just before this um, talking about uh, the Tudor monastery farm series. Yes. Which, so good. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, for the, we, AC and I just watched it, started watching it last night. Uh, I don't know how we missed it for this long, but it's, if any of our listeners haven't seen it, it's really, really interesting it's on YouTube. Yeah. It's on YouTube for free. And it was BBC series, but in, in the series, they talk about how uh, ingrained the religion and the agricultural year were, and all these various festivities are a ne- like a necessary integral part of the whole cycle and of the culture. And, it, 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 we're so distanced from that, that cycle living in a industrial society where we're always on screens and so on. But to go back to that, to connect to the earth, like this is a, this is a really a a good way of doing it because these are natural cycles and they're, you know, 
necessary for somebody who is actually uh, in a good relationship with the earth. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and even if you're not, even if you are now um, stepping onto the path of being in an acknowledged kinship with the planet and all the things that we do as we step back into that world, when you look at what has come to us as the wheel of the year, we have two solstices, two equinoxes. You don't have to believe that those are going to happen. They happen. It's, right. a, it's a natural event that the sun does with the earth. Yes. But in between the, the things that we call the cross quarter days is a time to plant, a time to tend, a time to harvest, and a time to rest. And as human beings, even if we are not on the land, to think that this is the time when I plant the seeds of what my life is going to be like this year, the seeds of what my new project is going to be, the seeds of how my family, all of that. Mm. So there's your time to plant those seeds. And then you tend whatever that intention was. And then there's the harvest time where you go, yep, I did all of that stuff back in the spring. And here is the fruition of my life as I worked through that cycle. And then there's the time to just kind of kick back and rest and, and knit some washcloths and some socks and, and think about what you're going to plant in the next cycle. It's not literal. It's metaphorical. Yeah. And I also want to say that, that this book has been really kind of synchronistic for me. Um, it's really interesting because we had our first uh, interview almost exactly a year ago. And that's, this is about a year since we started the podcast and we've been on this, this farm for this is our set we're ending our second season so we've been able to go through the wheel uh, a second time so we actually like see like where it's like a reaffirmation of everything mm. and then in the books that i've been reading also just like correspond so much i've been reading about like uh the barbarian conversion a book uh by richard fletcher i think and he talks a lot about these you know the conversion of the germanic tribes um in at the end of the roman empire and these festivals like Martin mass, like that's from St. Martin who, um, you know, cut down sacred groves and so on. But they, they, they took these festivals from the, the pagan uh, inhabitants of Europe, you know, before Christianity. Yeah. So so could you give us a little, um, you know, history of these, of these festivals and like where they came from and like, yeah, absolutely. Cause this is one of my favorite parts of this book. Um, so for years and years, I worked in an independent bookstore that really catered to, because the two owners were Episcopalian, it catered to kind of thinking Christians and liberal cutting edge sort of Christians. So there was always the latest Richard Rohr and, and other great modern Christian thinkers and, you know, all the classic stuff, too. So I would run into all sorts of different ideas. And our our customer base had an awful lot of clergy from a lot of different traditions. So that's when I ran across the idea of Ember Days and of Rogation Day. And and I went, oh, that is so cool. I mean, even the name Ember Days, where you've kept this little warm bit of fire and it's just going to take you blowing on it and adding kindling to make it this huge roaring bonfire. It, it just appealed to me so much. 
And so I remember asking a Catholic priest, an Anglican priest, and then kind of a high church Lutheran. So how do you do Ember Days? And for all of them, it was like, oh, Ember Days. Yeah, well, that's kind of an old fashioned thing. I mean, it used to be it was a time of where you would uh, you would pray and you would acknowledge how sinful you are and that your connection with from the divine was broken because you were so bad and awful. And it was a time to repent and to and to fast and all this stuff. And I was like, that can't be what Ember Days is about. I don't believe that. Yes. <laughs> So I went back and and restructured Ember Days uh, within the wheel of the year. And I gave them different names. Like one of them, the one that we're that we're experiencing soon is called Wander Days, where the land is beautiful. And it's a good time to ramble out from your fields and and check out what's going on. But I use it as a time to reconnect and also to blow on the ember and see what in your life needs to be replenished. What in your life needs to be re? Where do you need to be remotivated? And also, what things do you want to let go? Because you've been doing that for four or five years, and it doesn't really fit who you are, or what you're doing. And maybe this is the time you let it go. You bury it with uh, whatever you're burying in the garden to be composted for next year. So that's how I restructured four sets of ember days. Mm-hmm. But the rogation day is the one I'm laughing right now thinking about it. So. To go back to the urban noia mm-hmm. theme, Rogation Day was a pre-Christian Roman holiday. The, the word for pray in Latin is rogare. And in Rogation Days, the people of the cities, of the big urban areas, like, you know, well, like Rome, they would go out into the country to where the grapes were being grown that were getting ready to be harvested to become wine. They would go out there in this procession and you can imagine all these like rich city people in their beautiful robes and like the women would be carried on litters by slaves and they would go out onto the land and they'd make sacrifice. And sometimes it would be like a white bull like they did for Mithras or other. There was usually an animal sacrifice and there were songs and there were priests that did incantations and chanting. And they were basically out there begging the rural gods not to destroy the wine crop. And it just is so funny to me because can you imagine all the farmers like us? They're out there with their filthy nails and their grubby clothes like, oh, God, the city people are coming. It must be must be rogation day. They're coming to they're coming to do whatever. Okay, And it just it ballooned from there. And I imagine that like the the farm women would bring special drinks out and special treats and they'd make the city people pay a lot of money for it. (laughs) <laughs> so that they could afford to buy more land or to plant more vines or whatever. I just, the whole thought of it was so funny to me <laughs> that I've also added uh, Rogation Day in as just as a day when we thank the spirits of the land for all the things they do that we don't even know. I mean, we, we like to think that we work in, in alliance with the spirits and in a lot of times we do. But I think they also, they have their own agendas about things and they do what they want to do. And I can just imagine all of us going out now in wearing our good hiking boots and going out into the fields and thanking the land spirits and all the other spirits and just letting them know that we love them and we're grateful for all they do for us. Mm. 
That's really yeah. Nice. Rogation days. I'm going to make that a big deal next year. I'm going to be all about rogation days. Yeah. <laughs> it's also kind of funny. It's like land spirits. Please don't don't destroy our grapes so we can get drunk all year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, and I'm sure there was an economic component to that because. The Romans sold wine all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, no, no, we're protecting our investment. But also we need to like get out there in the scary place that's not at the urban center. We need to go out there and deal with you know, these crazy looking rural people, these pagans. We have to go deal with the pagan people. And, you know, we'll probably have to give them some coins or whatever. It just, it was like this whole scenario just blossomed in my head. Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to include that too, because I think this whole gratitude thing, we make lip service about it, but I don't think from many of us, it's a heartfelt thing. We do it because we understand from Facebook that being grateful is a good thing, but we don't necessarily understand that. And that may be one of the, gifts of COVID, frankly, is that now maybe we're going to be a little more grateful for what we have. Well, Mm -hmm. just on a slight tangent, gratitude is, is actually one of the most powerful emotions. I think it's possible, especially for breaking a spell of uh, depression or, well, especially Mm. self-pity. Say more about that. Well, I just know for myself, um, and this is my mom told taught me this, and it, so shout out your to mom, me. who is amazing, amazing. <laughs> shout out to Mama Hill. But um, you know, I, I definitely, if you looked at my birth chart, you'd understand. <laughs> <laughs> I used to get pretty uh, getting self pity spells, right? And and I'm just thinking about all the bad things and all the reasons that I'm not good and and all the reasons that I'm I'm miserable and pitiful. Um, but then when, when you just think about the things that you're grateful for and like actually feel it, it completely dispels that spell. It just, it, it, it's like a flashlight. Um, and, and it's like, wow, you, I actually have a lot to be grateful for. And there, I don't need to, to wallow in self-pity. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. So that's and I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> Thanks. Well, my mom's right. <laughs> okay, your mom's right. Let's just say right up front, your mom is right. <laughs> but you learned it from her, so you're right. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, we, we get in those kind of dark spirals about things, and it's hard to lift ourselves out of it, I think. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it's, it's a spiral. It's a, it's a cycle, and everything is cyclical. And if we could remember when we're in that dark spirally place that um, that it's all going to be, ultimately, it's going to be back where it was 180 degrees ago. But it's hard to remember that sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, Byron, what what you're doing this time of year and this time of like the fall and... and um, you know, cleaning up the gardens physically, but also um, emotionally, like what, what kind of things can you speak to for us um, going into the fall? Mm, uh, I am big on letting go. Yeah. And that's a fairly new thing for me because I am, I'm kind of a, oh, that, that looks cool. I'm going to keep that 
I'm going to, and if you saw my house and one day you will hmm. loaded with books and tchotchkes, it's like a little old Victorian lady's house. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm letting go of some stuff that doesn't serve. Okay. I've let go of some relationships that have not been healthy and that's been huge, but I think it's a, it's a wonderful time of year, you know, in the old days and maybe still where you are and in some places where I am, people clean out the edges of the field and they clean out the fields themselves and, and they have a fire mm-hmm. and they burn whatever needs to be burned so that we make space and make way for the next season. So yeah, I'm doing some of that stuff, some of the letting go stuff. And like I said, we just, um, we just restructured part of our garden. It used to be three shorter beds and we turned it at a 90 degree angle so that it was two long beds. Mm. And one of them has um, those wonderful baby pollards in it and a, and a row of spinach down the middle. Mm. Um, so that's been good to be out there in the soil. We've had enough rain that it's moist. It feels like spring soil, moist and ready to plant, but not wet and clogged up like it sometimes gets this time of year. So I've been doing some of that. I've been speculating about the next book and what that needs to look like. Wow. Um, yeah, cool. I, I think it needs to be about going out from the tended land, since this is all about tending community and land and homestead and hearth. I think the next book needs to be about finding that same level of divine kinship in the wild. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to find the wild anymore, but there's still plenty of wild. And of course, weather is the wild. And that's what we are finding more and more is that we think we've got everything tamed down. We have a, we have a beautiful park in Central Park and a lot of buildings and all that stuff, but the weather will still find you. So the wild of the weather still finds us no matter where we are. True. Yeah. And even the dandelion pushing up through asphalt in the middle of the city is wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always good. Always good to see. Yeah, we've did, we've been doing some clearing here too. Our our interns helped us go through a lot of the stuff in the barn, and we had a big fire—the biggest fire we've had yet of a lot of burnable um, wood and cardboard and and mouse poop papers <laughs> and stuff. And Ugh. yeah, it felt really they are the worst. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. And, and, and I, we we talked earlier about the various vermin of living the kind of lives we live and. Honestly, mice, they just get into everything. Ugh. Yes. So I did not mind burning all of that cardboard and newspaper. And it, yeah, it felt very clearing. And I'm also reminded of something from your book um, around the harvest time of clearing fields and stuff with burden cloths. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, it's, a, it's an idea that is so old. We don't even much think of it anymore, but I really wanted to focus on that. So, so much of the fall is taken up with the loud noise of people doing leaf clearing. And they've got these big leaf blowers and they're walking around making a lot of noise and polluting the air. And 
And they would just get way more exercise if they get a nice leaf rake or a leaf broom and a big piece of, it doesn't have to be heavy, but it needs to be tough kind of canvas. And just rake all of that into the center and carry it to wherever you're going to burn it or however you're going to do with it. Most of our leaves, of course, go into compost and we compost them. But a burden cloth is a wonderful thing to have. You can use a tarp as a burden cloth. You can use an old sheet as a burden cloth, one that's gotten too stained to use or kind of frayed around the edges if you don't like that. And they're, and they're so useful in so many ways. I had a funny thing on um, social media. I posted a picture of using a gauze row cover on these collards. And I referred to it as tobacco cloth because when I was coming up, you used that same kind of material to cover young tobacco, tobacco to keep bugs out of it and you know keep the weeds out and whatever. And somebody said, oh, tobacco cloth, is it made out of tobacco? I was like... <laughs> No, no, but, but it made me realize how far we are away from thinking of tobacco as a crop because right. we just don't think of that anymore. Yeah. Well, but I, I went down to our local Southern States to get, cause I was out of it to get some, uh, some row cover. And, and I asked the woman uh, behind the counter, I said, so I'm looking for row cover. And she had this kind of quizzical look. And I said, it's like, tobacco cloth only modern and she laughed and she said oh you know we still call it tobacco cloth <laughs> <laughs> there it is yeah and so as you're using a burden cloth you can also you know offer you know emotions or things that are not serving you as you empty the cloth into the compost right oh absolutely um i talk a lot when i do uh ritual with people um, about taking those emotions that that no longer serve you because I'm not one of those, oh, you can't feel a dark emotion or you can't feel a so-called negative emotion. I think we have to feel that stuff and then we have to find the ways to let it go when ready to let it go. And I talk about composting it, setting the energy down into the earth to be composted. How do you know when you're ready to let it go? Like, how do you know when you're ready to move on from wallowing in grief and darkness? There's a couple of ways. Sometimes you just know you wake up in the morning and you go, I'm at the place in my grief cycle now where I'm setting this piece of it aside. And I'm maybe going to, if you are grieving the loss of a person, maybe you add something else to the little memorial table you've created for them and sometimes we think we're ready and we're not and we go oh yeah no I'm ready to kind of move on to the next phase and you try to move on and you just can't because you're not really done yet right. and our our culture is we are slowly learning we really are about integrating death into life but so often we're told well I mean somebody dies and then you arrange the funeral and you do the funeral and then you come back to work in a couple of days and you, you know, you're all done. And it, it's just not simply, it's simply not like that. And if you are going to have to stuff down all the other feelings that happen afterwards, then it's not healthy and it's not dealing with grief. It's not dealing with death. It's ignoring it. It's bypassing it and hoping it'll go away. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't ever go away if you don't open it up and look at it and go, 
my grief right now is problematical because this person that died was not a good friend to me, but it was somebody that I loved. And I'm holding on to both of those things. You know, the anger of, of the relationship that can never now be mended, plus the sweetness and tenderness of the deep love that I had for this person. And when we can start to unpack things like that, to take the box off, to take the lid off that Pandora's box, then we start to be in a, a place where genuine emotion is more possible and more probable too, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I was just thinking about how really disconnected we are as a culture from the death process and how um, we've moved away from families caring for the body of their loved ones and cleaning the body. And like, um, we've given that over to industry, basically, to have funeral homes do these things. And I, I recently attended a natural burial this summer for a dear friend and Um, it was, it was just the most beautiful funeral experience that I've ever been to. And it felt like we weren't afraid of death. Like we were all grieving and sad, but it felt like we could face it with, um, a lightness and humor and just, you know, knowing that things have their time and everything has its cycle. And there was just so much comfort in it. And I hope that more funerals will happen like that. And, um, Yeah. I guess I'm, yeah. I'm curious but, if you've if you've had experience with oh natural yeah I had, I had a good friend Ramya and she kind of walked between this Hindu place and a Buddhist place and a pagan place and she was just this extraordinary woman and she had been battling breast cancer for many years and she had tried it all she'd done chemo and radiation and finally she had uh, a double mastectomy. And, and then the cancer came back again. And she said to the doctor, I'm tired. I'm just done. And I'm going to be done. I'm going to just stay home. And, and it was about uh, maybe two months, two or three months in the process. And her house was the happiest house. There were people in and out of it all the time. There was a list of chores that needed to be done. There was a list of people who uh, who said they would stay overnight with her. And we would we'd bring food in and we would sing and there was dancing outside and we planted flowers. And, and it was just, it was so beautiful. And I remember calling her one day and saying, I'm heading out there. What would you like me to bring? And she'd been vegan for as long as any of us had known. And she said, um, I want a cheeseburger and I want a real carrot cake with cream cheese icing. Oh I was my like, God. <laughs> she said, are you serious? And she said, oh, yeah. Hey, you hadn't heard? I'm dying. I can have whatever I want. <laughs> so it was just this happy light place. And, and then she died. And she spent three days there in her house. And they wrapped her in this beautiful white shroud so that only her face was showing. And her eyes were closed. And she had a tiny smile on her face. And she just looked beatific. And... And the same thing continued for those three days. We came in and we sang Mm -hmm. and we brought food and we shared food and we 
uh, we fed and honored her household gods and we just did all of those things. And then we would go in and spend 15 minutes sitting with Ramya and we all could feel that she wasn't quite gone yet, that her body was, had stopped functioning, but she wasn't quite gone yet. And we all wondered if she was just hanging around, checking out, if we were going to do what she told us to do. Yeah. She wanted to see it. Yeah. And so we brought flowers to her. Her whole body, shrouded body, was covered with flowers. It's just extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And and more of that needs to happen because it's not scary when you do it. I think sometimes the thought of washing a dead body seems scary. And it's not. I mean, there's some tricks to it, but it's not, it's not scary. And then I had a, another friend who had been about to die for God, six or eight years. And he'd get really sick and go in the hospital and they go, this is it. No, Richard's dying this time. And he did, and he wouldn't die. He'd come home. So we created a shroud for him and it was different. I think there were 12 by 12 squares. So it was like a big quilt and, and it was like, okay, it's time to do his shroud. So we did his shroud. And then again, he came to the hospital and he was fine. So he had his shroud for a couple of years and he would wrap up in it to watch TV. <laughs> so sweet. Yeah. So I think, in the book, it's really. Because it's <laughs> I think normalizing all those processes is going to, it's going to go a long way towards making us healthier as a culture and a species. Yeah. And, and to remember that grief, the grief cycle is a cycle. And the, the Victorians who were, they were not good at a lot of stuff. <laughs> they were good at conquering the world. They were good at kinky sex, but they were really, <laughs> they were really good at funerary stuff. And one of the things they did is that you might choose to be in mourning for a solid year after a significant death in your life. And you wore black. And if you were a woman, you were often veiled. That was like, there was no question you were in mourning. But after that, You might choose to wear lavender or purple to let people know you were continuing the mourning process and it wasn't as heavy as it was when you were veiled and in black, but you were still going on with it. And then after that, you might just have a black armband that you wore. And it was not to remind you that you were grieving because nobody needs that reminder. It was to remind the people around you that you had to be treated a certain way and treated with a certain amount of tenderness and respect because you were going through this hard process. And we would do well to do that now, I think. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's it's hard to integrate back into society after you've been grieving with a group who all are bringing flowers and are all in the same, you know, moment together and then to go back and try to go to the grocery store or, you know, try to just have a conversation with someone who doesn't understand where you're at, you know, that, that like social marker of wearing black or wearing purple, like it just makes a world of sense. Yeah, I think so. But now everybody wears black. So they might just think you were in your goth phase. Yeah. (laughs) We just don't have that as a culture anymore. Um, No. Yeah. But I love that there are uh, death doulas now and death midwifery and all of that to remind us that there are people who can who can help you as someone who has someone around you dying can help you 
be a participant in the process of the comfort around the death and then everything that happens afterwards in the grief cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So we're getting better slowly. Yeah. Yeah. I always think of this, this time for me, the, um, between the autumnal equinox and Samhain is like that time of like accepting death, accepting the end of a cycle. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. All that dies shall be reborn. Corn and grain, corn and grain, all that falls shall rise again. All that dies shall be reborn. Corn Corn and grain, corn and grain. All that falls shall rise again. Mm. And there's something very comforting about that. Yeah, it's true. And I think I think it's important to we we do a lot of oh it's a celebration of life it's not a funeral I know this person wouldn't want us to be sad or to cry and it's like no part of what is important in the process is for us to come together as a group and to grieve together publicly yeah. I think that's really important and when people ask me to do a memorial service. I say to them that it's important that people get a chance to cry, that it not just be, oh, that sort of forced jollification of, oh, remember when he was 14 and he fell off his bike, ha, 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 ha. It needs to be the kind of stuff that hits you in the gut and you can acknowledge, even with someone like, I, we had a, I had a loss about three weeks ago of one of our people in our community. And she, again, she had battled two different cancers and she finally just was too tired. And I wanted people to understand that you can be glad that she is now not in pain anymore. And that she, if you believe she goes to a, a, a another place that is lovely, that's good too. But we also need to acknowledge she's not going to be here the way she was. So you can't just call her up and go, let's go have some tequila. Mm -hmm. You have to acknowledge that that physical presence won't be here. And she may be with you in spirit and you certainly will hold her in your heart forever, but it's okay to know that you're going to miss her and to cry about that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that Mm. what you're doing with this book and helping to uh, give people an access point to being part of the of the cycle um is really important because when you're connected to the cycle so intimately it's you you can accept the 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 cycles of death and birth uh more easily and i i think that in our call our culture is is divorced from reality in a certain way we have this notion of progress that we're on a on a uh a straight line onward and upward to the stars. And it's, we've, we've forgotten the cyclical reality of life. (laughs) And I think we're at this point right now in this larger cycle of like Western civilization of industrial civilization of the American empire, where, uh, you know, the tower times are really starting to become apparent. And I think a lot of people are, plugging their ears and closing their eyes. <laughs> um, but being able to grieve the, 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 the civilization is, a, is, 
going to be very important to accept yeah. where we actually are. That's true. Yeah. And, and to begin to understand that, because so many people will say to me, so what can we do? What can we do to keep the tower standing in tower times? And, and I just said, that's not the point. The point is it has to fall. Yeah, so we need falling. to get out there knocking yeah. at knocking at the foundation to make sure the damn thing falls. Yes. And the important thing is never to rebuild it. Never. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've, too many people. I mean, it's it's scary to lose the status quo, even if yeah. the status quo is bad. Right. There's a, there's a wonderful line in Hamlet of we would rather bear the ills we have than fly to others we know not of. And there's so many people who are like, yeah, this is bad, but I can endure this. It's okay. I can endure this. And then one more thing happens. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, this is terrible. Okay, no, I can, I can endure this. Maybe it's time for us to stop enduring and start living again and to figure out how we do that and how we don't keep this necropolis of a civilization upright when the problem is the civilization. We don't want to save civilization because the problem is civilization. Well, it's also uh, the way I see it, it's a natural, it's a natural cycle, you know, and looking like re reading um, the, uh, about the end of the Roman empire. Right. And it seemed like it was a part of a natural cycle that was going to happen one way or the other. And reading about like the, the Christian conversion too, it's like, in a way, like I, I you know, I, I'm not a Christian anymore, but um, there was a, a youthful energy to it at that time that just like bowled past everything in its, in its way. And that has been like this whole cycle too. And so the, we can't stop the tower falling and we don't want to. Um, we should focus on what we want to see in the future. But the other thing that I find interesting is that I think a lot of people, you know, they, they like that the status quo, they feel comfortable about it, but they also, um, and this goes back to, to the pagans who ha give lip service, lip service to loving the earth, but th it's this uh, acceptable dissidence, you know, <laughs> Their lifestyles are actually tied into industrial civilization and their the lifestyle is dependent on it. So <laughs> whether or not they're conscious of that, it, the tower falling is a, is a major life shattering you know, event, which I think yeah. a lot of, yeah. yeah. So, so <laughs> recognizing it is, is I think the most important thing, recognizing how, how we actually are, tied to the tower and how we actually want it to to stay but and then releasing those those uh <laughs> those burdens yeah well it's it is such an efficient and effective system hierarchy and because of its efficiency and because we're so comfortable with it at every point in our human history where we had the chance to not do that anymore we didn't take the we didn't take another road because it, it all boiled down to that person on top of the pyramid. No, this one was really bad. So we're just going to replace this one with a better person on top of the pyramid and never 
acknowledging or being incapable of not acknowledging that the problem is the structure of the pyramid. That when uh, when a, a anything is structured in that way, it is run off the large base of the pyramid, which is all of us, and and everything has to move upwards to serve whatever is on the pinnacle, but not a lot moves down. And and frankly, whatever group it is that's on the pinnacle of the pyramid, they don't really benefit either. I mean, they may benefit materially, but they don't actually, they don't learn what they need to learn and they don't understand the, the, the way the world actually works. Yeah, the, the elites become senile. Um, but it also, it reminds me of the, all those Roman empires, uh, Roman emperors who only lived for 20 days before the arrival murdered them in the, you know, in their bed. Yeah, yeah. Oops, poisoned again. Next. <laughs> I, I think it's wise for people to look at the, uh, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire and some of those other books about the fall of Rome right now, because we've always thought of ourselves as the new Rome. Yeah. Always. And I mean, I, I look at the way what's happening in this country right now, the way things are going. And I think, well, it's going to be one or the other. We're going to, somebody's going to solidify power in a terribly fascist way, or the empire is going to break apart because that inevitably is what happens. One or the other. Yeah. Well, and we're seeing the empire break, I don't break apart too, like just with, uh, you know, Afghanistan, for instance, but I, I don't want to get too far into, into these, the, <laughs> <laughs> the politics. Okay. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Let's well, get back to, back to the land. 